All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. And in this chapter, we're going to begin a brand new topic. Notice how chapter 8 begins, now concerning food sacrificed to idols. And that opening phrase, now concerning, indicates a shift in topic. We saw this at the beginning of chapter 7 when Paul said, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And so it seems as if every time he shifts topics, he's just going to pick up with now concerning. And he begins to kind of list off some of the things they wrote about. So we saw that at the beginning of chapter 7. We saw it in the middle of chapter 7 where he shifted to a specific subtopic related to marriage and singleness. Uh, They're dealing specifically with betrothed people. We get it here, now concerning food sacrifice to idols. We'll get it again uh, a little bit later when he talks about spiritual gifts. And so this is a, a marker phrase for Paul as he shifts to new topics. And the topic here is food sacrifice to idols. This topic will be the focus of the next three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 will all be about... Uh, this particular issue of meat offered to idols, although chapter 9 will feel a bit like an aside because it's about Paul's ministry, but it's about Paul's ministry as a pattern for how the Corinthians should handle food sacrificed to idols, specifically in relationship to their freedom. And that topic, food sacrificed to idols, depending where you live in the world today, but most parts of the world probably isn't as big of an issue as it was in Corinth in the first century. In the first century Roman Empire, this was a real problem that the Christians faced, not just the Christians, but the Jews faced as well. How do we handle that? How do we interact with our city and our culture with regard to food, particularly meat, offered to idols? And so we have three chapters here in 1 Corinthians about that. It gets mentioned in the Jerusalem conference and the decrees to uh, Gentile believers that come out of that in Acts chapter 15. And the topic is mentioned when Jesus really condemns two of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.14 and 2.20. Two of the churches are challenged because they tolerate eating meat offered to idols. This was a real problem. And the reason it was a real problem is because of the nature of food, meat, temples, and all of that in the ancient world. The primary focus here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is going to be on food eaten at a temple. And many of the pagan temples had banquet halls as part of their temple campus. And so they'd have little dining rooms. They might have larger banquet halls. And it was common to have dinner parties at them as well as to host worship banquets. And so the the meat would have just been offered to whatever God's temple you were at, uh, and now it would be served to you. There might even have to be some incense offering that would go along with that to honor the God as part of the dinner party. And so these uh, dining rooms and banquet halls in the temples were tied up with the pagan worship that took place in those temples. So that's the primary issue that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. At the end of chapter 10, he will uh, briefly talk about a secondary and related issue to that. And that is that much of the meat that was sold in the marketplace 
came from the sacrifices in the temples as well. So if you bought your meat, you never knew where it was from. Or if you were invited to a friend's house for a dinner and they served meat, you never knew, right? And Paul will deal with that issue then at the end of chapter 10, beginning in 23. So this topic is real and it's actually practical and troubling. Like, could could you meet with uh, over lunch with a business associate? What if fellow members of your trade guild wanted you to go to dinner with them? Or could you attend a reception for a relative's wedding at a temple banquet hall? And if you did, would you be guilty of idolatry, right? Like these are practical things that happen, like business deals, dinner parties, trade guild gatherings, uh, wedding receptions. These are the stuff of everyday life. And so there are real practical implications related to this particular topic. And so chapters 8 through 10 is all about this. And just as Paul has done in earlier discussions, so too here, where he kind of works slowly up to his very specific instruction on this uh, subject. And so here's the way chapters 8 through 10 is really organized. Chapter 8 is the big picture, and it focuses on the superiority of love to their elitist view of spiritual knowledge and theology. That's chapter 8, big picture. Chapter 9 is what feels like an aside, but it's Paul's example from his approach to ministry, and it focuses on giving up your rights for the gospel and the good of others. Then in chapter 10, we finally get the specific advice. And the specific advice is flee idolatry and do that by not eating temple meals. Not only that, feel free to eat meat in other contexts, but just be sure you use discernment on that. And so big picture, example from Paul's ministry, specific advice, chapters 8, 9, and 10. So as he has before in this letter, Paul first gives some initial general principles that shape his specific instruction. That's what we have here in chapter 8. So chapter 8 begins by saying, Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. So before he's going to talk specifically about meat offered to idols, he's actually going to give some general comments about knowledge because he understands that their misuse of their knowledge is actually at the heart of the problem. And what it seems like is going on in Corinth is that there is a group in the church claiming that they knew the truth about idols, that idols were nothing. And thus, they were free to, to eat whatever they wanted to eat, whenever they wanted to eat it, wherever they wanted to eat, because it didn't matter because idols were nothing. And when you pay attention to the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, and you see the emphasis on knowledge and on wisdom and things like that throughout the book, it seems pretty evident that this kind of elitist view of knowledge was a huge part of the problem in Corinth. Um, there were some apparently who contended that they had more knowledge than others and that they were therefore more spiritual and right. And it's even tied into their spiritual gifts of knowledge uh, that is discussed in chapters 12 through 14. And so it's that elitist attitude kind of regarding their spiritual knowledge and their theology that's causing all kinds of divisions and problems in the church. And so with this specific issue of meat offered to idols, their knowledge about idols was causing them to eat meat sacrificed to idols in complete disregard 
for the impact it had on other believers, especially other believers who might easily be drawn back into idolatry from it. So Paul's got some things to say about knowledge in preparation for everything he's going to say about meat offered to idols. So that's why verse 1 says what it says. Now concerning food sacrificed idols, we know that we all have knowledge. It feels like it doesn't follow, but it has to do with what's going on in the church and the situation that's driving the issue of meat offered to idols. And so he says, we know that we all have knowledge. Um, and he, again, seems to be referencing the position of the knowers in the church. Those who have knowledge, this is their position. We have knowledge. Uh, they know all the things about God and about the spiritual life. They know all the things about idols and that they're really nothing. And so Paul begins, it seems, by once again referencing the position of some in the church. And then what Paul does is he's going to rebut their claim by demoting such self-serving elitist knowledge. So he says, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Then he says, knowledge makes one conceited, but love edifies. Literally, it's knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Uh, in other words, when you have all this knowledge and you think that's the end goal and you think that that somehow you're better because you have this knowledge, you're all conceited and you're willing to flaunt your knowledge for your own benefit or to display your own status or to do whatever you want to do. Knowledge makes one conceited. It puffs up. But love, on the other hand, actually is concerned about others. It's looking to build up other people. And Paul's actually going to continue over the next handful of chapters to build out this truth about the importance of thinking of others more than yourself. And he's going to give it full attention finally in chapter 13, the well-known love chapter of 1 Corinthians. There it's in the context of knowledge gifts. And so this seems to be a huge problem for the Corinthians. They are in love with knowledge and wisdom and their spiritual gifts that they think gives them this special knowledge. And it's causing all sorts of factions and divisions in the church. But love is the antidote for all of that. Love is the antidote for arrogant knowledge that's leading to division. Because uh, love is concerned about others and builds up others. So what we'll see in Paul's instructions here in chapter 8, as well uh, through the rest of the section, is that Paul, by and large, agrees with their theology. So although their theology may have been largely correct, their application was not. And they need to learn the supremacy of love. So Paul says, uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he says in verse 2, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. In context, this is primarily a statement about the priority of love. And the idea is this. If anyone thinks they've arrived because of their knowledge, they actually don't really know rightly. That's the idea. Like, if anyone is, is certain that they are uh, more right, more spiritual because of their knowledge, they really don't know as much as they think they know. They really don't know things accurately or rightly. Why? Well, because the key thing is loving God. It's not that knowledge is bad. Knowledge isn't bad. It's just that knowledge is never the end in itself. And when it comes to theological knowledge, 
It's a means to really knowing God and loving him. That's the true end of studying the Bible. That's the true end of learning theology is to know and to love God. And loving God is what actually leads to a deeper relationship with God. Notice what he says, that if anyone loves God, he's known by him. He enters into deep relationship with God, that, that God knows him and he knows God. So knowledge is only a means to the end of, of a deep relationship with God being known to him. That's the goal. The goal is to love God and be known by him. Now, all of that is preparatory for his discussion of meat sacrifice to idols. In fact, when you read the rest of this little section, what we see is uh, that no, the word know or knowledge shows up over and over again in what Paul is about to say. So look at verse 4. We know that an idol is nothing in the world. Or jump down to verse 7. However, not all people have this knowledge. Or look down to verse 10. Um, where he says, the one who has knowledge, um, and then he talks about them dining in an idol's temple. Or verse 11, for through your knowledge, the one who is weak is ruined. And so this stuff about knowledge and love and knowing God is all preparatory for what he wants to say about meat offered to idols. And so Paul now, beginning in verse 4, returns to that specific topic, meat offered to idols, and and shows how these general principles about love being superior to knowledge applies to it. So he says in verse 4, Therefore, based on that, based on the fact that knowledge puffs up, love builds up, based on the fact that um, what you really need to be focused on is loving God, and out of that, being known by him and thus caring for his people, out of all of that, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Here, Paul agrees with their theology. It's true. By and large, an idol really is nothing. Although later in chapter 10, Paul will say that things sacrificed to idols are actually sacrificed to demons. But there really is only one true creator God. And we know that. And so Paul is, by and large, agreeing with their theology. When he says that... Um, there is no God but one. That really echoes the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, that was at the heart of Jewish uh, kind of religious experience as well as at the heart of biblical theology. The Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. We know that. We know that, that there is no God but one. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he explains this further. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. What's he getting at? What he's getting at is there are pagan temples and pagan gods all around town, Asclepius and Jupiter and so on, all around Corinth. And so when you look around, yeah, there's all sorts of gods and there's all sorts of lords all over the, the city, all over the place. But look at verse 6. Yet, or more literally, but, it's a strong contrast in Greek, it's the word Allah, but for us, there's only one God. So there might be all these different gods and lords all over the city of Corinth, because there were temples everywhere, but for us, there's only one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And 
one Lord, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, by whom are all things and we exist through him. And so Paul's like, yes, there are temples and pagan gods and there's all of that all around town, but we know that there's really only one God and one Lord, God the Father, the creator of all things, and Jesus Christ, the one Lord through whom we exist. So the creator God and Jesus the Messiah, these are the only true gods and lords. And notice what he says. He says, and we exist for him. We pass over these kinds of phrases so quickly sometimes when we're reading the Bible, but we exist for him. Uh, we exist through him. Those little phrases are just critical for us to realize that that's the whole reason we are here. We are here for God and through Christ. We exist for him. So we know this. And all of this is true and important and good to know. So Paul agrees with their basic theology on this. The problem doesn't lie with that. The problem lies with their application. Their application is all wrong. And so Paul explains in verse 7, However, not all people have this knowledge. So we know the truth about God, and we know the truth about idols, but not all people have this knowledge. All people could be broad enough to mean like most of the people in Corinth. But what Paul is talking about is an issue in the church, and he focuses his attention on people in the church for whom this understanding about idols and God and all that, for this knowledge is brand new, and it's radical, and it's completely different than anything they've experienced. And so experientially, it's beyond what they know. You could tell them, oh, those idols are nothing. You could tell them there's only one true God, but experientially, in their whole livelihood, the whole way they've been brought up, they don't really know that. Um, it, it, they, they haven't experienced that deeply yet. As Paul goes on to explain in verse 7, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. Like, this has been their habit. This has been what they grew up with. They grew up frequenting temples and worshiping these gods. Their whole life was shaped by honoring these gods, placating these gods, seeking these gods' favor. Their whole experience has been that the idol represents a real god, a real being. I mean, they're accustomed to the idol until now. And so, being accustomed that way, they eat food. If they were to go back into an idol temple, they would eat food as if it was sacrificed to an idol, to a real God. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And so for a person like this to re-enter such a temple and eat such meat, that defiles their conscience. They just can't do that. They can't even consider it with a clean conscience. How, how could you do that and at the same time honor Jesus as Lord? Now, Paul's going to come back to this idea of the conscience. And notice what he says. Their conscience being weak is defiled. He's going to come back to that at the end of chapter 10. What he says here in this verse will be really important to keep in mind when we get to those verses because what he says here will help clarify what he's actually saying there. And the basic idea is you don't want your so-called knowledge and your so-called freedom to defile another person's conscience, do you? That's the appeal Paul is making here to the Corinthians. Now, this fact that there are people for whom their conscience is defiled by eating this kind of food raises another question, and it's the next question that Paul takes up 
in verse 8. And that question is, well, is, is food then really affecting your relationship with God? And Paul says in verse 8, now, food will not bring us closer to God. Again, true enough, right? And this is consistent in Paul's writings. Food is morally neutral. Food was a big deal for the Jews, food laws. This, eating idol meat, big deal. But food itself is morally neutral. Just as Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. And so just like marriage and singleness in the previous chapter, chapter 7, your relationship with God and your spirituality isn't changed by what you eat. It's a morally neutral thing. But this actually goes both ways. And so he says, we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Since food really doesn't affect your status with God, your relationship with God, then it doesn't matter whether you eat or whether you don't eat. It's no big deal. You're not less spiritual because you can't in good conscience eat that idol meat. And you're not more spiritual because, hey, I know that I can and I have the freedom to do it. Neither way really makes any difference to your status before God, your relationship with God. Um, so food is morally neutral, and thus it's an area of freedom. But, verse 9, but take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Remember, he just described those who have been accustomed to the idol until now, right? And they're new believers, that their, their conscience being weak is defiled. And Paul's saying here in verse 9, don't let somehow this freedom of yours, that food is morally neutral, you can do what you want with it, it's not going to affect your standing with God, don't let that freedom somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Because freedom isn't the highest value. The well-being of your brother or your sister in Christ, that's the, that's the highest value, and that's a matter of love. So make sure that if you have this knowledge, that an idol is nothing, there's one true God, and you feel free to eat, make sure that you don't damage your brother and sister in how you apply this knowledge. In fact, in chapter 10, Paul is going to come down very hard on avoiding idol meat. He'll make a few concessions, but they're minor, and even those concessions are subject to change, and it's all driven by love. That is, it's all driven by what's best for the other person. Now, a couple notes here out of verse 9 that are important for the whole argument. The first is the word freedom. Take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That word freedom in verse 9, depending on the translation you're looking at, um, is literally uh, authority. It's exousia in Greek. And in this context, it has to do with uh, having this right, this right to eat meat. Hey, it's my right. I, I know it's not going to hurt anything. I have the right to eat this meat. Some translations even translate that way. Take care of this right of yours um, does not become a stumbling block for the weak. Um, it's this right to eat meat. Now, it shows up in chapter 9 a number of times. Um, it actually shows up six times in chapter 9, and it's translated at least in the New American Standard that I'm using, right every time. And so that's the idea. That's the connection between chapter 8 and chapter 9. So be careful that the so-called freedom and right of yours does not defile or damage your brother. That's the idea. And he uses the word stumbling block. Does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And that word stumbling block 
doesn't merely refer to something that you don't like. They just don't like it. It refers to, the word means like to trip somebody up or ensnare them to their own demise. And so this is something significant in that it defiles their conscience and damages their faith. Um, don't let your right and your freedom do that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. How could that happen? Well, Paul explains in verse 10, for if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, so you've got this knowledge and it's accurate, but if they see you dining in an idol's temple, in one of those dining rooms or banquet halls, you're gathering with business associates in a temple, you're at a wedding reception at a, a banquet hall of the temple, if someone sees you doing that, will his conscience, if he is weak, not be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. And so if he's one of those persons who's accustomed to the idol until now, and he sees you who have this knowledge doing that, isn't somehow he going to think, well, I guess it's okay. And, he, and for him, he can't do that and disassociate from the worship and the idol and all of that. You might be able to, he can't. And Paul now is like, look, you're damaging your brother. He's now going to eat things sacrificed to idols. And this is the primary issue in chapters 8 through 10. Not just eating meat out of the marketplace. Paul will deal with that briefly right at the end of the whole discussion because it's a, a related and secondary issue. But the primary thing is going to the dining rooms at the temple um, and gathering with friends or eating in a banquet hall of a temple. And if you do that, you may just destroy or damage the faith of your brother and sister in Christ. And so he says in verse 11, For through your knowledge, the one who is weak is ruined. He's damaged. He's hurt. His faith is ruined. This brother or sister for whose sake Christ died. Like, here is your brother or sister in Christ, one that Christ literally loved to the point of death, and you're willing to damage him for the sake of some meat? That's the, the force of verse 11. And so Paul now calls um, this elitist, self-serving uh, use of their knowledge for what it is. He says, so by sinning against the brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. So you have this knowledge and your knowledge is theologically accurate, but the way you're conducting it in complete disregard for your brother or sister and the complete lack of love, you're actually sinning not just against your brother or sister, you're also sinning against Christ. So this is no small thing. And so Paul ends chapter 8 with his basic stance on eating meat sacrificed to idols. This is how Paul approaches it, and this is what, how he wants them to approach it. Verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to sin, like by going and eating in this temple, if I cause him to sin and damage him, then I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to sin. And so just on the basis of its impact on his brother or sister in Christ, Paul says, this is my approach. Uh, now, he's got more to say about this whole eating of meat offered to idols and all that, and he'll come back to that in chapter 10. He'll actually give some more reasons for avoiding eating at a temple. He'll give some other advice, right, on eating meat from the marketplace and all of that. Um, so he's, he's going to have more to say, but his basic stance is this. If it damages my brother or sister in Christ, done with it. I will never eat meat again. 
And so as we wrap up this section, what this section reminds us is that in areas where we have the freedom in Christ to participate, things that we can do and it's not wrong, what I like to call morally neutral areas, in things like that, and we have freedom to do it, we must submit our rights and our freedom to the best interest of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the reason for that is because my freedom and my rights, they're not the highest value. The highest value is love, loving God and loving others. And love seeks to build up others. Love doesn't serve itself and doesn't serve itself to the ruin of others. Now, this passage also helps us put a gauge on that. It's not like we constantly have to be worried about what people think and, and all of that. This passage puts a gauge on it by showing us that it's not just giving up my rights or my freedom because somebody doesn't like what I'm doing. It's not just like giving up my rights or my freedom because, well, you know, there's some older person or younger person or, you know, whatever it is, and they prefer something different. No, it's giving up my rights and my freedom because it will damage the faith and lead into sin, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul says. You have caused them to sin. You have ruined them. You have defiled your conscience, uh, their conscience. You have led them to eating meat offered to idols. And so the gauge is, I give up my freedoms and my rights when it's actually going to seriously damage and ensnare a brother or sister and their faith and their loyalty to Jesus. Now, when that's the case, then I have to say, you know what, for the, the well-being of my brother and sister... I am willing to abstain from indulging my freedom and my right. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So if you're one of those who support this ministry, let me say from the bottom of my heart, thanks a ton. It is making an impact on the lives of people all around the world. And if you've been impacted by this ministry, I would just like to ask you, would you prayerfully consider supporting it? And you can do so by clicking the link down in the notes below or by going to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and you can set up a one-time or a monthly recurring donation right there by checking the box that says, Make This a Monthly Donation. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit. And so thanks a ton for your support.